This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives Podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast Network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, doing double duty this week after Home and Away yesterday. And I'm here today with Stephen Gillespie, and we are here to talk about one of the top players in this draft class who I feel like I haven't talked about enough this year. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm excited to be here. Anytime that we get to link up, it's uh, always a heavily anticipated show for my part. And if I could just say I love the lead-in because... You're saying like is one of the, you know, our our prospect that we're going to be talking about today is one of the top prospects that you feel like you haven't talked a lot about. I actually kind of led in with that on my piece that, you know, we're going to be talking about today. So very you're you're a pro, man. You're a pro. (laughs) I I do my best. I I try. So today we're here to talk about Stephen's recent article on Cam Whitmore and his star potential and. I just want to sort of start out with the basics before we drill down into the specifics. What was it that tempted you to write about Cam Whitmore this time of year? So this time of the year, you know, we first off just hats off to the entire No Ceilings crew. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to pat our whole team on the back here. It's kind of some people might find it weird, but we've done a lot of like deep dives into prospects. And I feel like we have done a pretty decent job of covering a multitude of uh prospects just in in depth i think we're like close to like the 80 range and um total prospects that we have individual pieces on if you just talk about guys that are covered in quick hits from among our writers as well uh, you can it sounds like pretty close to double it so we've written about for sure yeah it's it's a lot so when when considering that it's like this time of year I feel like we've almost talked about everybody and as much as you know people like maxwell myself you know evan uh everybody else on the team we we get real deep into the weeds and it's like okay can my 217th prospect on my big board can i find a way to write an article about them it's like you know it's a good time to start circling back because there's a number of people that are nba fans that you know might want to have more easily accessible, ready, um, ready-made, maybe full evaluations uh, at this time of the season on some of the top prospects that their teams might be picking, right? So that's why I wanted to focus on Cam Whitmore now coming into the season. I was crazy enough to entertain him as like a top three guy coming in. Uh, silly me was even like, is there a possibility that he can maybe rival Victor Wimbenyama coming into the season? Now that was quickly dispelled, but I was a big fan of Cam Wentmore coming into the year. So once we got to this point, I was just excited to circle back and write a full evaluation on him as opposed to doing one earlier in the year. So it's interesting. You mentioned sort of leading into the build up here for Whitmore, how he's 
sort of jumped up and down boards in interesting ways this season. He's never, you know, there have been quite a few top prospect freshmen who've fallen off the, you know, top of the radar. But, you know, he also hasn't really gotten to a place where, you know, as you mentioned, there was, you know, talk of him in the year, you know, maybe, maybe competing for one of the top three spots in his class. It seems at this point that it's pretty unlikely that he jumps into the top three, but it also seems, I mean, it seems like, you know, the consensus is a lot of people have him at five. We have him at five. A lot of people have him, mm-hmm. you know, down at nine, 10, but that's pretty much the range, which is really interesting, you know, especially when we're talking about a number of other top prospects that you mentioned in this buildup section, you know, so the names around him in the 2022 RSCI rankings. So Derek Lively, who has had a very interesting season, but has sort of climbed his way back up into first round contention. Keontae George. Story, yeah. yeah, Keontae George, who's basically the only the other player who's sort of had a similar story to Whitmore, you know, never, you know, wild blazing success to the point where they're hearing their name in the top three, but also never really fallen that far out of the top 10. Then Cason Wallace, you know, depends on who you ask. Jairus Walker, Brandon Miller, Anthony Black, Grady Dick. So... You know, a lot of the guys in that range are making up sort of who we're talking about in the five to, you know, depending on how you feel about Lively and Grady Dick, like the five to 15 to 20 range. But yeah. it's interesting that Whitmore has been, you know, despite his sort of injury struggles early on in the season, he's been pretty consistent. You know, he's been pretty steadily in that, you know, five to 10 range, not all that much higher, not all that much lower. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't keep, you know, giving praises to what Corey does for our team and for our subscribers at nosailingsnba.com. It's hundred percent free. Go check that out. If you haven't already, I uh, had to get that one out of the way. Uh, Metcalf Corey... is infecting us with the language for those. We've just all started doing it the exact way he does it over the last few months. And it's, it's bothering me. Yeah, we are um, just Metcalf zombies over here with the, the plug. He, he's, <laughs> he's done such a great job of getting that just like infected into our brains, but he's infested Corey, all of us. He has. Corey has also done a great job of infecting our brains with these draft rankings, right? Where he goes in among the consensus and he, he pulls among all of the, you know, reputable draft outlets that are out there. And that's where we get the term consensus from is like what ESPN, the ringer, the athletic, a bleacher report, swish theory. Of course, our rankings are also incorporated in there. And cam is just kind of, I feel like in this safe range, where and I even mentioned this in the article where it's like, okay, I have Cam at seven, which obviously means I like him. He's a top ten guy, but it also feels like you're just putting him in a safe range. I feel like as much as I don't want prospects to be divisive, I feel like he should be more divisive than this when you consider the the you know how Villanova played overall as a whole, when you consider the physical tools that this has. I mean, while we're recording this, there was a picture today of him jumping pretty much like above the 40 foot measurement where he fingertips, like he's over the entire thing. So yeah, a player of this level of athleticism, not really being discussed at, at nauseum, even despite competition or play style or team scheme or whatever the case may be, he is like kind of strangely not discussed enough. And I feel like he should be more polarizing than he is, which Nick, we really don't necessarily advocate for, but I feel like he should be like discussed as crazy as, in, in as crazy amount as like the Thompson twins. Like to me, he should be in that conversation. And we're just we're just kind of like politely saying, oh, OK, he's a top 10 guy and then move along to the next guy. 
the conductor of chaos was here yesterday. We don't need more chaos oh, yeah. being conducted here today. No, um, but in all seriousness, I, I'm not gunning for Rucker's spot. Like that, that, that man is on a throne of his own. I'm just trying my best to incite a little bit of madness. Just, just a tiny touch of madness. No, it is really interesting. So first of all, thank you, Cam Whitmore, for clearing that rack just in time for us to podcast about you. That, that's, you know, perfect timing on our part. You know, the day after your article, the day before this podcast, brilliant timing, Cam. Really appreciate it. I've but, had a couple of those this year. It's just I, I love the way that the uh, the draft cycle timing can just, like, be so serendipitous. It's awesome. It, yeah, this is one of those times where it worked out pretty well for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Not getting talked enough in the draft cycle, and then all of a sudden he gets talked about more than he has in months. So perfect, perfect timing. Love it. No, so let's sort of get into some of the build-up stuff here before we drill down into some of the queries you ran on Whitmore. Mm-hmm. This was interesting. It's really funny that you brought up the idea of polarization because he had a really rough stretch to start the year. You know, he missed the first month or so with an injury, with a thumb injury, and then you know, started the season pretty slowly. And it's interesting that you sort of bring up the polarization around it because, I mean, you know, there are two other, you know, highly touted freshmen in, in this class who, you know, missed the start of the season slash, you know, a bunch of games early in the season, came back midway through, started really slow when they came back, and then went in very different directions, right? For Cam Whitmore, he, you know, pretty much regained almost all of the stock that he'd lost, you know, in the early portion of the season, not doing great. For Nick Smith Jr. and Derek Whitehead, it kind of just kept going, you know, kind of tailing off into a tailspin. But for Whitmore, he really did turn around midway through the season. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much those injuries affected those three guys when we look at next year. You know, hopefully all three of them are healthy next year and we can see you know, how much of what we saw from them this year was, you know, who they are versus just, okay, you know, really rough start with injury being thrown into the fire and then see how much they can figure out. Absolutely. And I mean, I'd be remiss if we also didn't lump, you know, uh, Jet Howard into this conversation sure. players that, that dealt with injuries and how it may or may not have impacted their draft stock. But yeah, I mean, if you think about to Nick, like the sample size for college basketball we, we've talked about it at nauseum, even between like the whole Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson debate. You know, like the one thing that I don't feel like gets talked about enough is the amount of games that the G League do have to play as opposed to college basketball players. Right. So the fact that the sample size is so small, missing any time makes it more difficult. And I mean, look at Boba Miller. You know, he yeah. missed like 70 percent of the season. And because he's more of like a hypothetical player and didn't have time to acclimate to the to the schemes or playing against actual competition on the court, he is not going to be a guy that we're talking about getting drafted this season. Whereas Cam Whitmore, he missed some games, but it doesn't feel like he's getting credited enough for coming back and playing. Like we talk about how players like um how how players can can sustain lower body injuries and miss time, like what Dariq Whitehead had to go through. And how that can be like, okay, whatever we're seeing now, we can't take it too much to heart because that's going to take longer to heal. Well, Cam Whitmore was able to play because he sustained a hand injury, but you play basketball with your hands, right? So how much does that impact his game, even though he's on the court? Like, did that affect his touch at all? I mean, he still had a good three-point percentage and had decent finishing numbers, but is there even more to what we saw that was being hampered by a hand injury. Like who's to say? So I just, I think that the injury 
thing is becoming so much more prominent in prospect discussion now, Nick, because we see guys like Adrian Griffin come in. You know, there's a number of players that we have to say, okay, if they're fully healthy, what can they look like? Cam is under discussed as he is just as a prospect at whole. I feel like even the injury stuff got dismissed so quickly with him, especially with some of the other areas of the game I'm sure we're going to get to soon. So before we you know, sort of get into the deeper dive, there is one sort of thing I want to get through in the section that you've titled The Crunch here. And there's a group of six players in this query that you ran that I want to discuss. So minutes percentage, 50 plus, BPM, 5 plus, block percentage, 1 plus, steals percentage, 3 plus, three point percentage, 30% or greater. And, you know, you get to this list and ultimately the first couple names, Malevi Leons and Antoine Watson. So, you know, upperclassmen who've been around for a while. Kadari Richmond, one of the best defenders in college basketball, someone who I still still have a little bit of hope for his NBA future, just a tiny bit, clinging on just yep. a tiny bit to what's left there. Kobe Johnson for USC, someone who you know, has an interesting chance to come back and change sort of perception next year. But then the remaining two you have are two guys who are almost certainly going to go in the lottery here in Anthony Black and Cam Whitmore. And mm-hmm. it's very interesting the sort of similarities between the two on that front, because the very next section we're going to get into is one of the biggest differences between the two. But ultimately it's interesting in that there's a similarity between their cases as, you know, six, seven guys who can do a lot of different things on the court, but also very, very different players. But even so that that's a pretty solid group of six. And especially for the only two to be freshmen who are likely to go in the lottery. I mean, that's, that's a high bar. Yeah, and in this piece, I tried my best to include the actual snippet from Bart Torvik, which is an incredible resource for anybody that doesn't use that for some advanced analytics among the college basketball ranks. If you look at this field of players, Cam Whitmore only has a minutes percentage of just under 52, right? So he's not getting as much burn as some of these other guys, whereas Anthony Black is almost at 86% minutes percentage. That's an it's insane usage, right? So the fact that they are kind of close in a lot of ways, despite Anthony Black playing so much more, kind of speaks to some of the team stuff that we're going to get to later with some of the other aspects of Cam Whitmore's game. But it's worth pointing out that all of these guys, the reason I wanted to run the the stats that I did was I wanted to say BPM is like a, a good basic like overall impact on a game. The blocks and stills percentage that speaks to their defensive acumen, obviously. And then the three-point percentage points to the fact that, okay, not only is this guy going to be potentially a good defender at the next level, but you can also rely on them to space the floor. Now, if you look at the other field of players, Cam Whitmore ranks decently. He's not the top guy, but he's not the bottom either. So he's kind of this uh, median average three-point shooter within college basketball. But again, how much of the hand injury play a part into his overall three-point percentage. That's just another fascinating little wrinkle to that, that we have to evaluate with him. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but we will be back with more on Cam Whitmore right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. So I teased this somewhat before we went to break, but let's start with the dive and start with the offensive section of your deep dive on Cam Whitmore and you brought up some passing numbers up front that I think are very critical to telling the story of Cam yes. Whitmore. So the start is his personal assist numbers, which, you know, assists are not the be all end all of passing, as I like to think we all know. But still, mm-hmm. you know, the easiest sort of statistical qualifier for, you know, how good are you at generating looks for your teammates, right? And yep. his numbers, you know, 0.7 assists per game, 6.4 assist percentage, not great, not great. But the flip side is, he played on a team that was almost as bad at passing as Gigi Jackson's South Carolina squad, Villanova's 77th in assist percentage out of 87 high major programs and 281st in all NCAA division one schools. That's, that's really not great. And, you know, I think a lot of that is just stemming from the fact that this year's Villanova team was weirdly disjointed. You know, we, we expected this to be as Villanova always is, right? We expect Villanova to be one of the best programs in college basketball. And instead, this was just a weird year from start to finish. And, you know, it's another interesting wrinkle in the why is Kim Whitmore not more divisive discussion that you brought up earlier of, you know, he goes to a school that had this ridiculous track record of success. And then they had one of the most disappointing seasons in a while. And he's still viewed it in this light. But, you know, I think a lot of that is just most of his you know weak points were not failures of him personally but you know questions more about the team around him rather than just purely an issue with cam personally yeah and i think one thing if we could go back and look at the 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 crunch section is the turnover mm-hmm. percentage right like he's not uh, the the great thing about bartorvik is they make it like steven proof i like to say they make it very easy to say whether or not this is good or whether or not this is bad his turnover percentage is like median right so if you consider the fact that he's playing on a team that is bottom easily bottom third i'm not smart enough to do the quick you know percentage here um 281 over 63 but obviously it's on the lower end of most college basketball teams that the way that they move the ball collectively the fact that he has a a net neutral turnover percentage is actually a pretty good indication of his decision making right like to me that's easy stuff to figure out and getting back to the passing, it's it's important. We can go we can go this route with multiple players. We talked about South Carolina, although Villanova was actually worse at passing collectively as a team than South Carolina. So was Ohio State. So we can look at the players that are being criticized the most about their passing are players like Gigi Jackson or players like Cam Whitmore. And players like Bryce Sensabaugh. Well, that's entirely Bryce's fault. The other two are innocent, but Bryce, it's entirely his fault. (laughs) You have a vendetta against Bryce is what it sounds like. No, actually, I'm just making jokes at this point. But anyway, I I know, I know. (laughs) Bryce is our our precious little baby boy over at No Ceilings. He can do no wrong. It depends on who you ask. It really does. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, back to the point that I'm trying to make here. Um, Those three prospects, when we talk about 
oh, well, their assist numbers aren't good. Well, whoever says that is actually correct. They are not great numbers, right? So one thing I wanted to do is look at, okay, this is the this is the statement. I want to look at the why behind it. And once you look at the why, it's like, okay, you're right. But here's reasons to believe that it might not be entirely that one prospect's fault on a team that collectively isn't moving the ball incredibly well. So that's what I wanted to address first, because I feel like the first off, the title of this article is addressing the star potential of Cam Whitmore. In order to be a star in the NBA, you do have to be able to make good decisions for others, right? Not just yourself. And that's what I wanted to address first. I wanted to dive into the playmaking. I wanted to say, okay, how can we contextualize it? Then I wanted to move on to actual footage of what it looks like when he is able to move the ball in a free-flowing situation. And I came away pleasantly surprised. Like I was looking for positive traits, but some of the moves that I did see from him in playmaking sets were actually very encouraging that this could be something that is looked at negatively now, but put in the right ecosystem could actually turn into a pretty positive strength. Yeah, I mean, the question when you look at those assist numbers for Cam individually and then look at the numbers for the team, you know, the pretty obvious question is how much of this is Cam not being good at passing and how much of this is this is a team that, you know, doesn't exactly emphasize that. And furthermore, that, you know, this is a team that really struggled to score, you know, especially outside of Cam, you know. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of you you only get, this is the most obvious stupid statement I can make when I'm going to make it anyway, right? You only get an assist if they knock down the shot, right? Like it's, Everyone knows this. Everyone yeah, knows this. I, I hope everyone knows this, or at least everybody who's, you know, following basketball in some capacity knows that, right? You know, this is, right. ultimately, if they don't make the shots, then, you know, you don't get an assist for it. And you don't get hockey assists in basketball either. That's why it's called a hockey assist, not a basketball assist. A little known um, fact, but a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where to go from there, but um, anyway. <laughs> How about back to the article? <laughs> yeah, why don't, why, don't, why don't we do that? That, that seems all like right, a right. reasonable thing to do. So from the passing stuff, let's move on to some of the stuff that yeah, is less of a question for Cam, right? You know, there, okay. with the passing stuff, there's questions of how much of this is the team context, how much of this is Cam personally. When we're talking about Cam's ability to put the ball in the basket, you know, and you start off with isolation plays, but, you know, really just sort of Cam's overall scoring ability, mm -hmm. that's not a question. And it's interesting, you know, what you brought up earlier with if someone's going to be a star in the NBA, you know, there has to be at least something that they do for their teammates. I think it's more just, you know, the sort of concept of if you're going to have the ball in your hands a whole lot, you know, if there's only one thing that you can do with the ball in your hands, other teams are going to scheme against it, right? I mean, something that I've, you know, talked about, I feel like more often than ever in the last couple of months, but the concept that, you know, guys who are just pure specialists get played out of the league faster than ever these days, yeah. you know, guys who can only, who can only shoot, right. The, I always go with, and I feel bad for it, but I would go with Troy Daniels's example here, right. Of someone who was just such a spectacular shooter, but could not defend well enough to stay on the court. Right. With, with Cam having the ball in his hands, you know, it's the kind of thing where it would be great if, you know, he could develop into one of the premier playmakers in the league, but he just needs to be good enough on that. And it's easiest to see that when you look at him scoring, you know, in isolation or scoring when he's, you know, got his, got this play run for him. That was incredibly poorly phrased, but whatever, you know, his, his ability to score when the plays run for him, you know, he just needs to be able to do enough with the ball in his hands to sort of keep the offense humming because, 
an offense built around him is going to do a lot better than offenses built around some of the other guys in the lottery discussion. Right. And, and there's a couple things that I want to unpack when we're talking about the star potential with cam here and touching into the passing a little bit and then getting into the scoring. Right. So a star in the NBA is different than I think what it used to be. Right. There are a lot of star players in the NBA that aren't actually like the best player on their team, so to speak. I mean, we can look at examples like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. I think they kind of change roles depending on the game that they play. They're both stars, right? So there are other teams that have these like multi-pronged best players on their team, and there's an established pecking order hierarchy. I think Cam Whitmore probably falls as like the second best player on a championship level team that on certain nights could probably be your best player. Like that's how highly I think of him. So with that being said, the threat of his scoring is obviously going to help him become a better facilitator. And that's kind of what I shade and highlight a little bit under the playmaking section when we're breaking down his passing and the numbers that are a little bit uh, controversial, so to speak, for his star outlook. Now getting to the isolation portion. Great isolation player, a 74th percentile among all uh, college I'm sorry, he ranks in the 74th percentile when we're looking at college players that have played in isolation. So the number of isolation plays ran for him, he ranks pretty high uh, among all college basketball players. And it's just an incredible thing to see someone who in a scheme like Villanova is still able to be an effective player with the ball in his hands and when he's given the opportunity to cook for himself. And the thing that I wanted to break down in particular on the isolation side of things was how he can use his gravity and his pressure to kind of help set up the other, if if that makes sense, right? He can use his ability to attack the basket to free him up for a jump shot and vice versa. He can use his jump shot to help help him kind of use his athleticism to exploit the defense and apply tremendous amount of pressure on the basket. Yeah, Rucker and I were actually talking about this yesterday when we were talking about Cam Whitmore and sort of the idea of what he did in FIBA U19s last summer. That's, I think, you know, it was easier to see, I think, in that context, what he can do with his isolation scoring than it was in the context of Villanova. But, I mean, FIBA U19s is just he was absolutely athletically dominating just everybody around him, just, you know, powering his way to the rim and then finishing over, you know, multiple people just truly insane explosiveness from Cam Whitmore. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, that gravity really does open up the floor for him to create looks for others. And, you know, when he had a better surrounding context in terms of, you know, some of the top U.S. players in the world, the Phoebe U19s, you know, he was doing a lot better than he was in a much more cramped situation in Villanova. Yeah, and and that's where I fell in love with him as a top three prospect coming in to the season was that. Yeah. And the the thing that I loved about the commitment to Villanova was I was looking at him as this like raw scoring star player and thinking if he can just do the connective stuff in a team like Villanova, unfortunately Villanova, we saw Duke do something similar. So I think that if you look at both of these teams side by side, there's a lot of parallels between them, right? They both have had brand new head coaches relieve legendary figures within the coaching ranks in college basketball. Now, if you're going to if you're going to relieve a star coach of their duties, you're still going to want to try to make your own imprint, right? Like you don't want to just be known as 
the next Coach K or the next Jay Wright. Although that that would be a very flattering thing, you want to be the first Coach Neptune and the first Coach Shireman to have success within college basketball. Also, the difference between Villanova and Duke is that Duke still pulled an incredible recruiting class collectively, right? Villanova had some good freshmen. Cam was obviously the star, but this was not in terms of just overall collective talent on a team. This was probably one of the weaker Villanova teams coming into the season that we have seen in, in quite a while. And maybe there's just some belief in the program, some carryover. There's enough assistants and staff members that have some carryover from the prior regime that might lead into some success, but it was just a depleted team. And that just made life for Cam as a passer scorer uh, all the more hard. But that's why I wanted to, in these moments of isolation and playmaking, dive into the glimpses of flashing that would help him culminate into a star player that I was hoping to see coming into the year. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about Duke, they had the top two guys in the recruiting class plus a couple other five stars. That's a bit different than Cam Whitmore and figure it out. I mean, you know, with Eric Dixon and certainly former Metcalf favorite, not sure if he's still on the Brandon Slater train or not, but, you know, those are those are veteran guys who'd been part of those, you know, title-contending Villanova squads. So, you know, yes, the talent coming in was, you know, nowhere near as strong as the ridiculous bevy of talent that Duke had coming in, but... I don't think, you know, even even with that in mind, I don't think falling off from what 30 wins the year before to yeah, 30 and 8 the year before to 17 and 17 this year, that's not a good look. No, it's not. It's pretty helpful whenever you have the uh the top recruiting class in in college basketball or one of them coming into the season. It makes your life you would think a little bit more easy. Uh and then also the transfer portal that that Duke was able to get as well. Now, Villanova is able to get people. It's not like they're bereft of uh of any start of magnetism that they can get uh, a really good player. I mean, obviously they got Cam Whitmore. It's just that I feel like under coach Wright, you would have started to see these connective abilities, Cam Whitmore, uh, much more frequent. And that would make people more comfortable with him. Maybe that makes him more polarizing as opposed to this kind of like safely placed at seventh. So I can say, that I liked him. I just had questions. Well, you don't get to have those questions if you're in an NBA front office, right? Like you have to get these star player selections correct. And I think that Cam, based on what we've been talking about, is a little bit more uh, further up the top 10 than where he is being placed as a consensus right now. So let's now move to some of the shooting stuff. And yes. It's interesting. So you mentioned he ranks in the 86th percentile on spot ups. You know, that's very good. I don't, you know, it's actually excellent according to Synergy's grading system. You know, that's Synergy hard to argue so. against that. Sorry. I said Synergy says they're excellent. So there you, there go. you go. Yeah. I'll, I'll take their word for it. But it's interesting because if you just look at the raw numbers, I mean, you know, his shooting from two point range is solid. I don't think anyone's going to deny that. But, you know, Ending the year at 34% from deep is, you know, a little bit below average, you know, not, not, you know, problematically terrible, but, you know, not the kind of thing where you look at that 34% on paper and it's like a bright shining light of this guy's an excellent shooter. But you look at some of the breakdowns and, you know, certainly that, you know, percentage on spot ups really helps. But then you also look at the fact that in his seven games in December, after he came back from that thumb injury, he shot 28% from deep, right? Yep. 
that that's the kind of thing where you know you mentioned earlier, and I'm really glad you did the effect that the small sample size of college seasons can have on these numbers, right? I mean, his 28% in December, you know, dragged down the whole number. In January, he shot 43% from three, yep. right? So, you know, it's very difficult to tell based on that, you know, what kind of long distance shooter he's going to be in the NBA. I mean, the, you know, the thing that I talk about is even more cruel than the Troy Daniels thing is the Derek Williams principle of like, you shoot 40% mm. in one college season and people think you're a shooter when you're not. With Whitmore, it's interesting because the most basic obvious number of, oh, look at his three-point percentage. Oh, okay, that's kind of around average. Oh, look at his free throw percentage. Oh, 70%, you know, kind of around average. But you look at some of the breakdowns like that spot-up number that you, you know, put in the piece, and it's like, oh, this guy's actually, you know, probably a much better shooter than just the baseline numbers, especially given that, you know, in the few games – most closely proximate to him returning from injury were his worst shooting, you know, games of the season. Yeah. And again, you look at the 28% coming off of a hand injury. I think that last part of that statement uh, holds a lot of weight still, just because you're coming back from a hand injury doesn't mean that you're going to be back at a hundred percent, right? Like who, I don't know the extensive, the, the extent of which he was hurt in that hand. And obviously being able to play through that, maybe feeling the little bit of the pressure, like, okay, I'm falling a little bit in, in these rankings. Uh, I'm falling in the perception of the NBA. I need to get back in there and kind of just ball out a little bit and maybe get a little bit more comfortable. He showed that he was able to do that. You know, he was not afforded the same opportunity to kind of bolster these numbers up against lower levels of competition because he came back when he did. His very first game was against Oklahoma, which is a pretty good program if we're talking about division division one athletics right so in that first contest against oklahoma he didn't even get prolonged minutes and he's still being coached as a freshman basketball player on a team that has a lot of upperclassmen and he's playing a minute percentage of 52 percent. so not only are the games played a little bit more restrictive than some of his peers but the amount of time that he's afforded to be on the basketball court on top of that is even more restrictive so when we're looking at minutes versus production you have to look at flashes more so than just the overall productivity that he's shown on the court which is what i attempted to do obviously in this article being able to show the many ways that he's able to uh flourish as a shooter uh and that he showed that he was able to be able to do towards the the end part of the season when he's starting to be more comfortable and finding a consistent role on the team you mentioned the minutes consistency. I mean, he didn't even start until December 31st. He came off That's the bench right. those first six games. And, you know, there's the element of, yes, we, I think it's fair to assume that, you know, he was at least in part impacted by a hand injury in terms of his shooting early on. But, you know, also the idea of, you know, this is not someone who's used to coming off the bench either, right? And, you know, for some guys, that's an adjustment they can make right away very easily. For other players, that is a huge adjustment. And especially when we're talking about, you know, potential star level guys, I mean, you know, Russell Westbrook adjusted eventually, but, you know, he talked about how difficult that was for him to adjust to coming off the bench for the first time in his NBA career. And that's after he was a star six man at UCLA too, right? So it's the kind of thing where that impacts people very differently as well. And, it's hard to tell, you know, how much of Cam's game was impacted by, you know, him essentially coming off the bench for the first time in his career, probably, maybe. And th- I mean, it it's hard to say how much being able to play off the bench in a limited role uh, impacts your ability to become a star player. But if you look at the fact that 
No, no negative reports about Cam coming out of Villanova, not getting the minutes that he wants, not getting the, the role that he wants, uh, buying into whatever playing time that he was given and making the most out of it. Nick, I can't tell you how many times I would see him make incredible plays on ball, away from the ball, on both sides of the ball, and get pulled after just one bad play. You you know what I mean? So like yeah. he was he was getting that. And how long did it take Bryce Sensabaugh to uh, adjust to? Okay, I'm playing off the bench now. I've worked my way back in to the starting lineup. He had an entire full season to be able to do that. I mean, you you look at the starting point of Cam Whitmore compared to some of these other prospects that we've been talking about throughout the year. He was playing behind the power curve, yet was still be able, was still being able to show the consistency, the pro- productivity, and the flashes of some of these other top tier talent in a condensed amount of time. To me, that deserves a lot of credit and a lot of um, more spotlight. That's why I'm saying he needs to be a little bit more polarizing than what he is, because we we have excuses for almost every prospect in this draft class. And we hold so tightly to our takes on him. And Cam Whitmore is just, again, we're just kind of politely placing him in the top 10 and moving on to talk about whoever else we want to discuss. Well, it's funny. I know I'm bringing this up in front of the resident Arkansas guy, but you know, multiple times I've had the discussion with Rucker about specifically, are we overthinking Nick Smith Jr.? Like specifically Nick Smith Jr. Because he doesn't get the same breaks that, Cam Whitmore does. And I think a huge part of that is because that Arkansas recruiting class was arguably better than the Duke recruiting class, right? So, you know, a lot, yeah. lot more talent around Nick Smith Jr. than there was around Cam Whitmore. But it is very interesting how, you know, Nick Smith Jr., basically the same story, right? You know, gets injured. We expected him to miss the rest of the year. Instead, he comes back, doesn't play all that great. And all of a sudden, you know, there are people who are, you know, dropping him down to later portion of the first round, if not out of the first round. It's like, why are we willing to give certain players so much more slack on this front than others? The flip side, of course, is, you know, we're barely talking about, as you mentioned, we're barely talking about Cam Whitmore when, you know, there are things that he has very much in common with other players who don't seem to get anywhere near the same level of consternation. Yeah. But I mean, to somebody who might be arguing for Nick Smith, you say, well, Cam Whitmore is still in the top 10. So obviously he's doing something right. Whereas Nick Smith is, scoring like 20 points a game at certain points throughout the season and is still being criticized for the way he plays and how injury prone he he could or couldn't be uh, based on his frame. It's, it's easy to get in like these polarizing discussions. It's just funny how little cam is being, because even Nick Smith is being talked about as a divisive prospect. I've seen uh, certain people who are very intelligent within the draft space still have him within the lottery top 10 range. And then I see people say, ah, I wouldn't even, depending on the team, I might not even take a first round pick on him if I only have one pick. You know what I mean? So there's there's a lot of divisiveness there. But again, we 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 move on from Cam like way too quickly. And I just wish that there was more like pushing him towards the the front of the line as opposed to just leaving him in the middle is what it feels like. Speaking of leaving Cam alone, let's take another quick break and we will be back with more on Cam Whitmore right after this. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's get into the defensive discussion here with Whitmore. And do you want to bring Metcalf in to talk about the defense, <laughs> or am I? Is this okay? Just, or... just say, just say footwork like fourteen times, and it'll it'll be good. <laughs> it'll 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 cover for him. That's that's really all he'd be doing anyway. Uh, no, but. In terms of the defensive stuff, it's very interesting because I was in a very similar place with you were with where you were on Ken Whitmore heading into the year where mm-hmm. I was very happy that he was going to Villanova because man, that seems like a great environment for him to, you know, not just be this score first offensive engine, mm-hmm. but to take advantage of his incredible athletic tools and become this next level defender. And it didn't quite happen. I mean, you know, in terms of some of the highlight stuff, you know, he had a great steals percentage, which as I've said time and time again, you know, those numbers translate very well to the NBA. So full reason to expect him to be a steals magnet at the next level as well. But I don't know. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, he was very solid on the defensive end. I don't mean to impugn his defense, but I guess I was hoping for a bit more than I felt like we got from him. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I, I could see that, right? Like, there are certain numbers defensively that you could look at. I highlight the steals percentage because, like you, I think that that means something. You know, like, there, even if you're only, quote-unquote, only a ball hawk in passing lanes, that has incredible value, you know, especially in the NBA where you want to play up-tempo, you want to push the break, you want to be in transition, especially with the best players mm-hmm. with their ball in their hand. Like, the, the easiest way to get a bucket for your best player is to – intercept the ball and create a possession that wasn't supposed to be there in the first place, right? Like that's what Cam Whitmore can do. I think the counting numbers are a little bit disappointing, but diving into the film, there's a lot of not being overly risky by, by being in sound defensive position yet still being a defensive playmaker, right? Like I'm not here to say that he is the case in Wallace or Scoot Henderson level a perimeter defender or anything like that, but Cam Demoy Hodge. Through, I'm sorry, Demoy Hodge. Demoy Hodge. How could I, I mean? I wrote about Demoy. I love Demoy, right? I know. Um, Jalen Clark, friend of the program, another great defender. Uh, Andre Jackson. We could keep going, but um, <laughs> Cam plays really good defense. Like that's ultimately the the point that I want to make here is like he's a really good defender. I think that he could even dare I say become a great defender. And again, I think that because of where Villanova was as a team, I mean, you look at guys like Dixon and Slater on this team, they're listed at 6'8", 6'9". I think they might be a little bit smaller than that. And Cam is only about an inch or two shorter yet playing on the perimeter. So I think that the defensive infrastructure on this team wasn't the strongest either, kind of like how I feel like the passing stuff could be a little bit more forgiving for Cam. I feel like the defense could be like that also because he's not playing a, he's not playing at a position where he's like the linchpin for that team, if that makes sense. He's not the mm-hmm. point of attack guy, nor is he the anchor. He is playing on one side of the basketball court and stuff happens away from him. Now, whenever someone wants to take him a little bit one-on-one, 
he can use that strength and athleticism that you were talking about, Nick, to his advantage. And I feel like he actually shows better flashes in college defensively, I think, in a lot of ways than compared to the offensive end, which is saying something because I like the offense a lot. And I highlight a few really good defensive uh, plays that he has had on the season for Villanova against some really credible players like uh, Bryce Hopkins of, of Providence was one of the better offensive guys within his conference during the year. And Cam says, nope, you're not going to take me off the dribble. I'm going to I'm going to take this ball and we're going to get a bucket on the other end. And I'm going to dare you come try to do the same thing to me again on the very next possession. Right. So it's hard playing offense against cam whitmore because he is the six seven six six very strong very sturdy plays good fundamental defense and yet can still create defensive plays out of thin air not just being a a, a risk taker like atari eason was at lsu who i love tari eason but i think that cam is a better fundamental defender yet can still produce like those same type of results I'm really glad you brought that up because that's, I think, one of the difficulties that I have with steals in terms of defenders because, you know, as I said before, I tend to really value defenders who can get a lot of steals because that's something that translates very easily to the NBA. But there is the issue of guys who gamble too much. And, you know, I mentioned Russell Westbrook before for very different reasons. But, you know, with him, a lot of it was, you know, he consistently graded out as a bad defender despite getting a ton of steals because he was getting a ton of steals by making gambles that he shouldn't have made right exactly. and that's a key thing with cam and that also relates to you know what you were mentioning before you know he's not the rim protector he's not the point of attack defender right you know he it's very important for him to just you know play straight up and not make mistakes and you know the difference between him and tari you know even they're playing very similar positions defensively right they're both you know mm-hmm. They're both essentially forwards, you know, more threes than fours, but essentially forwards, right? And the idea being they're not the point of attack guy. They're not the, I mean, Tari has a little bit more rim protection, but, you know, not much, right? The idea being it's the kind of thing where, you know, a gamble that leads to a mistake can be a lot more damaging than helpful, if that makes sense. Like if you're a point of attack guy, you know, and you, you know, go for a steal and your guy gets by you, you know, there's a rim protector behind you in theory, right? Mm -hmm. If you're on the wing and you gamble for a steal in the passing lane, you know, that might just be an easy dunk, right? You, you know, jump out of position, ball gets through and all of a sudden that's a free bucket. So it's the kind of thing where I think it's, you know, it's not more important to pick your spots because point of attack defense can be more damaging if you fail, but it's the kind of thing where, I guess the best way of putting it is like you can hurt your team a lot more by making mistakes as opposed to just, you know, if you're not the highlight reel defender, as long as you're solid, then, you know, you'll be fine if you're mostly playing, you know, not point of attack or rim protection. But with Cam, it's like the gambles that he takes. I'm more confident in those than the gambles that someone like Tarisen might take just because he's taking a lot more of them. Well, yeah, and then if you look at the defensive schemes that LSU and Villanova had within, you know, the respective draft years of both of these prospects, like LSU was very much like a a pressing style defense where Tar. Some of my favorite plays last season were watching Alex Alex Fudge and Tari Eason like mm-hmm. trap a person and just see them like just pretty much kill over on the possessions. Like, here, please take the ball. That you're you're scaring me. Please stop. Um, Cam Whitmore doesn't do that at Villanova because that's just not how Villanova played basketball for I'd say 90% of their possessions. That's not an, that's not a real number. So please don't aggregate that. <laughs> but 
they're just different schemes, right? So being able to generate the same total number of counting stats is much more difficult in a more conservative defense, obviously, than it is in a uh, more risk, uh, a, a more risky defense, right? And one other thing I want to talk talk about with Cam as a defender is that typically players, young players, especially like freshmen. If they're not feeling themselves on offense, you kind of see them mail it in a little bit on the other side of the ball. There's one play against DePaul that I, I posted in the article that I just love because I feel like it's a good litmus test for uh, the, the character and the, the will of a player where we see Cam miss a three-pointer uh, just by a tad. It was a good-looking shot, by the way, but he he missed it. And as DePaul corrals the rebound and is looking to get in a position, uh, the ball is being moved on the left side of the floor. Cam defensively is recovering on the right on the right side of the court. As the ball is being progressed across the court, the ball stays on the left side. Cam stays on the right side. And as his assignment now in transition um, cuts across the court to the left block, the ball is being passed in as an entry pass to the left block. And Cam rips the ball as he's running like this uh, – if you are a Tyreek Hill fan, you've seen him run this route a lot. This like banana route, right? Like just a, a nice little curved direction of, of a running cam does the exact same thing and steals the ball. Just saying, okay, my bad. I missed that ball. I'm going to go get it back though. And the offense, we're going to get set back up as if nothing ever happened. I, lo- I love that. So before we wrap this up, let's just go into the curtainless section here and you sort of, distill it all in this first sentence of the current section for this draft. There are thought to be three prospects that have probable star potential, Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, and Brandon Miller. Beyond those three, you'll find significant variance in who could be a player along the outskirts that stands a chance to become one of the top players in the NBA. Cam Whitmore lives in that area code. And I think that's ultimately, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I figured now might be the best time to mention it. I have Cam fifth on my board. And okay. the reason that I have him, that high is because I think that, you know, if all the pieces come together for him offensively, he can be that kind of star player. And, you know, ultimately I have him behind Jairus Walker because I think Jairus Walker's defense is something special. And I'm more confident in that translating than I am in anything for Cam Whitmore translating. But ultimately, I mean, I've been pretty set on that top four for a while. Once you get outside of that group, for me, the next two guys I have on my board are the two guys who I think have the highest likelihood of being stars in this class in Cam Whitmore and Amen Thompson, right? Uh, mm. If everything breaks right, these guys could be all-star, all-NBA type guys. And the reason I have Whitmore and Thompson, Amen Thompson, five and six, and Asar at seven is because those are the three guys up next to, okay, if everything breaks right for them, what can they be? And I think for Cam, that could very easily end up being second best player on a championship team, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and I, I think that the, where you have Cam relative to everybody else, I don't think that you're going to find too many people that are going to argue against you. Now, obviously, consensus has them two spots down, right? So then there's the question is like, how good do you feel about Taylor Hendricks developing in areas that we haven't seen uh, the the most uh confidence instilling play in those areas among other prospects right there's a couple guards that you might feel more comfortable uh in in projecting that they they would take a star leap you know players like anthony black are kind of in that range and we start seeing guys like grady dick are still holding top 10 value in a lot of places i think 
Cam Whitmore and Jairus Walker is a very interesting uh, 1v1 when we're talking about ranking because for the longest time, I've had Jairus fourth and I have had Cam fifth. And then I have the Thompson twins, Amin and Asar right behind them. Which, by the way, I don't think that Amin and Asar are miles ahead of Cam Whitmore athletically. I know that kind of maybe sound like revisionist history with the post that we saw earlier. I have receipts. If you're interested, please hit me up on Twitter. I'll share. I'll share the handle with you later. I do think that Cam is athletically outstanding. I do think that Cam, as a score, could be really, really, really special. I do think that Cam could be a very good defender at the NBA level. And I do think the biggest weakness in his game has been the passing. And I did my very best to contextualize why I understand why people might think that the passing numbers aren't great is because they're not. But I think there's great reasons as to why. And I think that the crazy thought he might get better as a passer at the next level. So if you were wrapping all of that up in a six foot six, six foot seven, crazy athletic package that player gets drafted way higher than seventh in almost every other NBA draft. Like Nick, he might yield. This is crazy to say now, right? He might yield top two, top three value if everything breaks right. And I don't think that's crazy at all. Right. But there are those who might think that, and this is no way uh, throwing any shot at, at the Twitter universe or anything like that. I'm just saying, but I'm (laughs) saying that if people could take a second to stop maybe saying who is better between Scoot and Brandon Miller, we might have another prospect that deserves to be in that conversation that has just quietly, politely been placed at the back end of the top 10. And again, if you're an NBA front office, you don't get to say, well, hey, I liked him. I had him in my top 10. I just had (laughs) questions like everyone has questions about every prospect. You can't miss on guys like this. And that's why I'm willing to stake that Cam is now fourth on my big board. As crazy as it is to say against Jairus, who I've had at four for, it feels like a century now. I just see the ceiling being much higher and I'm not as afraid as the floor as what other people may be with Cam Whitmore. Interesting. I mean, I totally can see it, obviously, given that I have, you know, the two of them flipped. But yeah, it's it's a really strange sort of discussion to have in the sense that, you know, I think it feels like all the guys around Cam are more polarizing. I mean, the Thompson twins have been two of the most polarizing prospects we've had in the past, you know, a few years or so, right? And, yeah. you know, there are people who seriously doubt Jarris's offense and therefore think that, you know, that I would be crazy for having him at four, right? So it's you know it's it's a very interesting discussion and even though I'm you know I have the two of them flipped I totally get where you're coming from with that I mean I think the offensive superstar upside is a lot easier for me to see with Cam than Jarrah's right and but there is still we see it all the time that there is still tremendous value in having a multifaceted defensive playmaker who can also create for others in a lot of different ways and to me Jarrah's has also shown that he is a good spot up shooter this season right like something we might not have expected and there might be more to his bag offensively as a playmaker that he just wasn't afforded the opportunity to show at houston right i just think that the self-creation aspect that we have seen from cam usually yields star potential with everything else that i've already previously discussed 
And if I see star potential in a player, I just feel like I I must place that player a little bit more higher than someone who I think is going to be. And and I love Jairus Walker, like really, 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 really good in the NBA. Just not a, he'd be a star in his role, but not a star on his own, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, we're talking about guys who we both have top five, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I feel Splitting like there's the, a little bit, yeah, exactly. It's like the idea of oh, if he's not number one on your board, you must hate him. It's like, well, yeah, you know, the top Slander. two, yeah, it's like <laughs> the top two on this board has been pretty solid for me for a while, and you know, even so, if it's not that top two, it's because someone has worked their way into the top three, right? It's like it's not, you know, these these are not prospects that we, you know, we're not talking about the, you know. 89th prospect on our boards in a terrible draft year, right? Like mm-hmm. these, these are guys at the top of the class. You know, we have to sort of, if we're splitting hairs, you know, that's sort of what we have to do to distinguish between these guys at the very, very top of the class. Absolutely. And it it's conversations like this that I'm, I'm kind of glad that I'm not yet in a position where I have to make those <laughs> important position or the important decisions for, millions of millions of dollars being invested into a player you know like if if you pass on cam Whitmore to draft jarris walker as good as jarris walker might be if both hit their absolute highest of heights cam is probably still going to be a better player than a jarris you're probably still in a good spot with jarris but you you start thinking like man what would it be like if i had the other guy you know what i mean or if you draft if you let's let's get crazy here and say that you draft Amin Thompson above Cam Whitmore. Both of them are very good athletically, but if Amin doesn't hit and Cam does, you're 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 starting to be questioned around how do you evaluate prospects and what your decision making process is and things like that. People don't want to be put in that position. All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, man. Just uh, thank you so much again for having me. I tell you this. Uh, you know, behind the scenes all the time. I'll say it again here on the air. I, I love the fact that, you know, I've been able to be on deep dives as much as I have been this season. It's an incredible honor and privilege. This might be the last time people hear me on a deep dives podcast with you. So uh, thank you again for extending the invite. I just, uh, people who want to, if you, you didn't get your fill of Cam, and I understand you didn't get your fill of them. We, we've whetted your, your beak and, you know, increase your appetite for more things on him. Go and read the article over at NoSiblingsNBA.com. Again, it's absolutely free. Um, we have a crazy amount of individual player breakdowns, not to mention, you know, combine stuff, uh, workouts, inter- like anything that you could want in a in a draft outlet, you get it at No Ceilings for absolutely free. Well, I'm not going to be able to do any better plugs than that, so we'll let it right there. He is Stephen Glassby. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops, and you can, of course, find his written work on NoSealingsNBA.com, totally free, as he mentioned. If you have not, please make sure to check out A Star Among Us, Cam Whitmore's Star Potential, the piece that we talked about in this podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoSealingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or your review on whatever podcast player you might be using that's always much appreciated on our end and if you have any feedback on the deep dive specific portion of the podcast feel free to reach out to me either via twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com and as always thanks so much for listening cool.